So glad you clapped before I preach, because you certainly aren't going to when I'm done. It's one, of my, it's one of my great privileges is I hardly ever get asked back. In fact, can any of you remember the last time I ever preached at an Aussie Equip? Exactly. It was years and years and years ago was the last time I preached. I remember Dudley asked me to preach, and I, my theme was, what do you do when you don't know what to do next? That was my last preach I ever did, and that, for you guys, anyway. I'm not hinting, I'm not asking to come back, I'm just saying. And that was at the wool shed. Yeah, exactly. Does it still, is the wool shed still there? Yeah, I'm not. All right, so I got, I got two reasons to be very happy. The first reason is obviously I'm with you beautiful people. And uh, it is a privilege to be with you uh, here today. I, uh, I was with... Paul Collinson, Paul and Nicole, this last weekend in Warnambool, great church, great people, just hungry for the things of God. I'm going to be with uh, Darren Prosser this coming weekend, and then after that, with him and Beck, and then after that, in the metropolis of Balaclava, where, uh, where Josh has helped organize a get-together, like in the middle of town, where a whole lot of churches are coming together on a Wednesday night and a Sunday, and they're letting me loose on them. So it's, we're going to have a lot of fun. And the other reason I'm really excited is my wife's on the plane landing in an hour and a half. And I can't wait to see her. And uh, from the days of when I was last year, I'm not going to get into it. But a lot of stuff went down in my life. Some of you are aware of it. Some of you aren't. But uh, you learn how to lean into the Lord when you have nothing else to lean into. So when I said to you, I'm going to be seeing my wife, just so you know, uh, she is my second wife. I lost my wife to cancer uh, five years ago. And uh, God miraculously provided. I mean, who on this planet wants to marry me? Three kids, the church I lead, the chaos around my life. Who? She's got to be, have all attributes that just like madness, blindness, <laughs> poor judge of character, um, and I'm grateful there was one out there. Please, this is between us. Uh, maybe start the preach recording again. And don't let her hear this, but I am a grateful, grateful, grateful man, just so you know. Is that right? Okay. So I want to just share with you uh, out of the book of Colossians, if you want to open there. And I'm going to read to you my, my theme for this morning or this afternoon, what is it? This afternoon is this. The identity of the church into the world. When they look at us, what are they supposed to pick up? What flavor? What, what, do, what are they meant to pick up? You know, can I just be honest with you? Some of us Christians look and act like total weirdos. Are you all right? Some poor guy is just buying a coffee and you come up. Do you want to hear about Jesus? The guy's like, are you a freak? Where do you come from? Meanwhile, you just want to let people know about the good things God's done in your life. But they often get a perspective of us that's just weird. When actually, Jesus had to hide from crowds that were so attracted to him. We have to pull up everything we know to get people to come to our churches. Jesus sometimes had to hide away just to eat with his disciples they so pressed into him. And I want to tell you, there was a naturally supernatural and a supernaturally natural life around Jesus that permeated his environment wherever he went. 
Now, I'm going to fast forward to the book of Colossians. Paul writes this letter from the place of a prison cell. And we don't think a prison cell in a modern movie. Think a dug hole in the ground where you are placed and fed every few days where it's outstanding heat. You're shackled. It's a terrible place to be. To be in a Roman prison in those days was horrendous. Now, when you're not preaching and the fire of God's not falling and you're not ministering to people because you're stuck in a cage somewhere under the ground and you're thinking of the church, Paul is thinking these two things. Number one, he's thinking, who am I in this prison cell? When there's nothing around me, Paul referred to it earlier in terms of this letter of recommendation. I don't look good. I don't look grand. There's nothing around me. Who am I? How am I? What am I? Sometimes you go through situations where an identity crisis can hit you because life happens hard and you don't know who you are, where you are. And his concern is for this church in Colossae. And he wants them to be rooted in who you are. Have you never seen the movie or you've been to a shopping center where something goes wrong and you've got that big bulgy guy normally with a shirt buttoned down to here and hair sticking out everywhere and a gold chain and he's, and he, do you know who I am? You know that? Do you know who I am? And then somebody gets on the microphone, can somebody please help us in aisle two? This guy doesn't know who he is. You, you know that? And so Paul wants to help us address who we are because when we stand in who we are, the world will come running toward us. That's what I want you to see. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring up from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Last verse. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who told us of your love in the Spirit. So I'm just going to hit you with five points in 25 minutes and we're done. Are you ready? I have been told I preach a bit quick. In that case, just listen to it on speed a half and you'll be all right. You're good? Great. Paul is concerned that the Colossian believers get established in their identity in who they are in Christ. Look where he starts. And when you read Scripture and you start somewhere, like Paul did earlier, and you start somewhere and you're going to end there, look at the sequence and see the foundation for what's laid on what and figure out why. Paul starts it off like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ. I am called as an apostle. I know who I am. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. His identity is wrapped up in the commission or the call he has received from God. God calls to send. Are you all right? I am called to be an apostle. I am called to go. Two-thirds of God's name is go. So you've got to get it into your heart from the beginning. 
God says, I have called you as an apostle. The risen Jesus had appeared to him. Paul was not convinced through someone else's communication as to the call of God that was on his life. And if you are going to stand, no matter what environment you're in, as Richard said, whether you're a business guy, this was written to the church. This wasn't written to the apostles. This wasn't written to the senior people in the life of the church. And by the way, Rich, I never wanted this. Just so you know, I was studying law at university. I went to my father. I said, Dad, how am I ever, when I, when I get older in South Africa, I want to get a job. And what can I do? He said to me, son, you either be a farmer because everyone has to eat. You'll be a doctor because everyone gets sick or be a lawyer because everyone fights. <laughs> and out of those three, I didn't want to be a farmer. I like people too much. I didn't want to be a doctor. I don't like the, the blood, you know. I'm, I'll give it to you, but I don't want to deal with it. And, and the other thing was I, I can talk, so okay, I'll be a lawyer. I was studying law at university, and most reluctantly, God saved me and called me into ministry. And can I also say this? There might be people out there thinking, I wish I was in ministry. Most of us in the front row wish we weren't. So don't come and think, I wish I could be like you. We wish we could be like you. Is that all right? Because you know what? You can leave your job tomorrow if you don't like those people and go get a new one. I can't go to church tomorrow morning and say, I don't like that elder and I don't like that deacon and I don't, I'm leaving. I'm not allowed to leave until God says so. Are you hearing me? Yeah. Yeah. So next time you envy us, remember, we're envying you. You go away for Christmas, don't you? We're preaching. <laughs> to the five of you that stayed because you couldn't afford to go anywhere. And, no, wait. And by the way, you didn't even give us a Christmas present. <laughs> anyway, so Paul knows we're wasting precious time. Let's just be quiet. Let me talk. Don't clap. Don't, I don't want to hear anything. Let's just get on with it. So... Paul knows the fact that he is a saint, he is a called one, because God has convinced him. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle sent not from God, uh, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. He knows who he is. And here's my point. This is why Paul starts with this. If you don't allow God to tell you who you are and to tell you what you're meant to be doing, the other guy is going to do it. And he is relentless in the lies and the confusion and the deceit he's going to spill into your life. And if you do not allow God to set who you are and what you're about, the other guy is going to do it. And he will change your circumstances all the time. And the thing with God, have you noticed, there's a few things God does that when we get to heaven, I think we'd love to have a council meeting and say, Lord, if this whole thing could ever have happened again, here are a few suggestions on what you could have done differently. <laughs> like, he's always on time. Have you noticed? But he's missed so many opportunities to be early when we needed him. <laughs> have you ever noticed? Lord, when I was in this big moment, why didn't you shout? Why didn't you part the heavens? He says, because I wanted to be heard in a still, small whisper where you're going to wait for me, not in the noise. And the enemy creates noise, a roaring lion. He's always trying to create noise. So God says, if I'm not speaking to you, and if you don't on the inside allow me to speak into your spirit by my spirit, the loud noises will dictate where you go. Are you okay? 
Why does he want you to go? We're going to learn in a moment what's critical to God. Adam's sense of identity in the garden was established by, number one, who God said he was, and number two, what he was called to do. Do you notice that when God called Adam to work in the garden, it was a full-time job, right? I mean, when his wife came, things just multiplied a hundredfold in terms of problems. But from before that... Just imagine you are working on your own. There are animals. Everything's good. It's all good. You're, you're pushing back darkness. You're growing. You're planting. You're doing all this. You're talking to the chimpanzees. On TV, there's AFL. Your, your shoes are lying everywhere. Your socks. Everything's good. You wake up one morning. Bang, there's a woman. And now you've got to give an account for everything from that moment onwards. And they go and work in the garden, and they're busy. And the Bible tells us that at some point in the afternoon, God came to talk with them. And we begin to see that there are moments God talks to you, but your life is reflected by your service from Him into the world. And so the apostolicness, the sentness of the gospel, the goingness of the gospel, needs to be caught up in the whole church, where we all begin to learn we are a going people. We are a sent people. We have moments, but we don't live there. The upper room, Mount of Transfiguration, the burning bush. These are moments where God shapes us and he fashions us, but from there he releases us into a world that needs us. And you can run and you can hide, but you can never avoid the fact that from the day you are born again, the day you're born again, Jesus says, follow me because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. How many of us? The whole lot. No, well, my personality doesn't lend itself. Well, get over your personality. Because there are people out there who need to hear the gospel through a personality just like yours. Because when I get hold of them, they run. So he starts off and he says, you need to understand the basis of your call. The basis of who you are as a Christian is you are a saint one. You are saint, own it. Because then you build on the next one. The next one I want you to see, he emphasizes we're family. Your identity as a church into the world. The world needs to know you're sent to them. Built on that, we're family. Paul begins his letter to the church at Colossae with words of gratitude. He's thankful. He calls them brother, the holy and faithful brothers. Grace and peace to you. There's a tenderness and there's a warmth in Paul when he deals with other Christians. Why? Because we all know who he was and what he was before he was saved. Correct? He was disqualified, but God came and God reached out to him. God saved him. God loved him. God forgave him. God gave him grace. God called him. God never lets him go. And all God says to Paul is, you know how I've just acted towards you? Go and be like that to everybody else from today until the day you die. You cannot expect family until you be family. We also, in this family, here are the house rules. Well, who sets them? Not you. God does. And so when you come to family, here's how it needs to be. Actually, God says, and if you look at the whole New Testament, I'm going to throw something at you. Don't. How many verses in the New Testament outside of Jesus commissioning his disciples in the Gospels, is there a specific verse that tells us to go and lead people to Jesus? Entire New Testament, from Matthew 1, to Revelation 22. Outside of Jesus telling his disciples to go into all the world, leave those four out. He spoke to some other guys 2,000 years ago. Outside of that, give me one verse. 
One, where Jesus or Paul told a single person in the church to go lead people to Jesus. You can't because there aren't any. It was alluded to earlier. When I know my sentness, when I know how I have been forgiven and received and loved and cared for, when I face the lost, all I can do is the love of God squeezes out of me that I cannot help but be the kind of people that God is calling them to be. The entire New Testament is about my transformation of becoming a member of a family. So it's not what I expect from the family, it's what I bring to the family. And am I a safe person? Do I bring life to the church? You and I know of the discord and the unhappiness and the gossip and the slandering that goes on in churches because they forgot their scent. They forgot they're called. They forgot that the measure you use will be used against you. And we forget that we don't have the right to speak to people outside of the way God has spoken to us. And we've got a world out there that's critical, abusive, horrible all the time where people are so hurt they've retreated into their shells. And here we come as a church with the opportunity to literally be the love of God to them out of what He's done in us. Really just being family. Are you okay? Family of saints, consecrated, set apart ones. And what qualifies you as a member of this family is not your actions, your morality, or your spirituality. It's the fact that you belong to the same Father as I do. We are family. We belong to each other because of the shed blood of Jesus. Then he moves on, number three. So first thing he says, you've got to understand you, you're sent. You're called. You belong. Number two, live it out as family. But number three, if you're a member of the family, what are the key evidences, the DNA, that I should spot in your life instantly? If I know you one who's following Jesus. And Colossians 1 tells us, faith, love, and hope. Those are them. It's four, Paul loves those themes. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, we continually remember before our God and Father your work prompted by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance prompted by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They are like apostolic shorthand. When Paul is looking for the basic description of a genuine Christian, Paul looks for faith, hope, and love. That's what you and I should be looking for. What does it look like? Well, faith is upwards, isn't it? It's the doctrine of justification by faith. Faith is my total confidence in him, in who he is, and in what he says he is. That's where my faith is based. Sure of what I hope for, certain of what I do not see. You cannot plumb the depths of the doctrine of faith. Faith still pleases God. Matthew Henry once said, faith opens the door of the soul to receive Christ Faith admits him, and faith submits to him. Let's put it this way. Faith is the door. Faith is the hinge on which the door swings. Faith is the key that unlocks the door. Faith is the impulse to even open the door when someone knocks. Faith is the willingness to invite the guest in. And then faith is the ability to recognize the guest is actually a king who comes to live inside you. It is faith that opens the door. Jesus says, when I return, will I find faith? faith on the earth. 
Are you a people still willing to step forward? When I walked in here yesterday, I gave Leo and Christine a big hug, and I said, you know what? You've set a marker in faith for people. And whatever battles you're facing, when you begin to overcome and you begin to, we used the phrase breakthrough earlier, when that happens, you begin to put a marker out. And people are attracted by your faith. Does Jesus find faith? Number two, does he find love? A famous Indian philosopher, I think you know who he is, once said, Jesus is ideal and wonderful. But you Christians, you're not like him. Mohandas Gandhi. How different when we know and we operate in love, true love that forgives, that turns the other cheek. True love that looks out for the benefit of others. Doesn't just say it, there's an action to love. Whenever I do a wedding, love is kind, love is patient, love is, whenever I do a wedding, I've done hundreds of them. I always substitute love for that person's name. Vanessa is love, Vanessa is kind, Vanessa is patient, Vanessa washes the dishes and then she corrects me. Signs, love, faith, and thirdly, hope. Hope is a big word because hope is connected with heaven. We live from that place, not to that place. Some people are saying, I can't wait one day to get to heaven. Colossians clearly says you're seated there already. It's already the place from which you live. Yes, I've been hijacked and robbed a few times and all that stuff because it's where I live. Part of the deal. God puts a gun on my head and cocks the gun and give me your car. It's like, well, what are you going to do? The worst you can do is send me straight to Jesus. I'll help. <laughs> do you understand this morning or this afternoon how fear is removed from your life when you live in the place of hope? Because the worst thing that can happen is you graduate to where you wanted to be. When my wife passed, my previous wife passed away, I was at the hospital, she died in my arms, and, and they were trying to resurrect her and doing what they could, and they were trying to do all, and, and I remember they brought her body, and I fell over her body, I was devastated, crying. My father-in-law put his hand on my back, and he said, Greg, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He kept shouting that to me, because I was beside, and you know what, there's hope when you live from there towards back here, and if you're just a Christian, you stop moaning about the economy. You stop moaning about COVID. You stop moaning about your high living standards here in Sydney. What's with all your prices for things? Got a word for you. Stop selling to the Chinese. It's simple. <laughs> Just sell to Aussies at a simple rate. You'll get ahead. Anyway, I'm not a, a, no politics. But all I'm saying is, if you live from that place with love and with, and with hope and with faith, you demonstrate I'm a saint one, I'm part of a family, and I have these benefits. That can be yours, which then translates into this. He talks about the power of the gospel. You learned it from Epaphras. Who? Our dear fellow servant, a faithful minister. Don't you always think that the gospel only spreads through Christian superstars, like Jesus and Paul? And if you go down the centuries a bit, you get guys like Augustine, St. Francis of Assisi, Martin Luther, John Wesley. Do you know the gospel actually spread through people like Epaphras, Onesimus? These are all names for your kids. Epaphras, Onesimus, Eunice, Aquila. Millions of nameless, faithful people who simply served God. I mean, how many of us would know the person who led you to Jesus? 
Yet you're having an impact. None of you know the person who led me to the Lord. But I'm having an impact, and the people that I reach for the gospel that are making an impact is all because someone led me to the Lord, because someone led him to the Lord, because someone led him to the Lord. The power of the gospel, firstly, is in the workers God chooses to use. And God bushwhacks us by allowing the most unsuspecting people to be influential in bringing us to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And you can be used in your environment, in your circles, even now, because of all these factors, you become a dear fellow worker together with us, simply operating within your own skill set. Maybe you're a famous football player. Maybe you teach people how to crochet. I don't even know what it is. But somewhere between that, you're able to get into people's lives simply because you're a fellow worker. You know, Paul writes, he uses 14 fellow workers, four fellow prisoners, two fellow soldiers, two fellow slaves, and one yoke fellow. What on earth is that? But these are the people that preach the gospel through and with him. Simply hanging around with him, they learn to become sent ones. What is our apostolic experience within our own churches? When you look at our corporate worship, we look at our individual love for Jesus. The divine sense of call, the gifts and move of the Holy Spirit among us, the growing fruit and demonstration of the Spirit, our fellowship. Do we see these characteristics in operation? Can we see the evidence that God is at work in His church because we're allowing Him to be? Do we see people growing into a fullness? Church isn't a two-hour meeting on a Sunday where you get this whole thing together, you preach and you wait till next week again. If that's church, we're all on a hiding. I went to preach in a church in a part of South Africa, and the guy said to me, lives in a, in a university town. He's a bit upset. The church isn't really growing. There's 70 people in the church because people keep coming in and going out. Every time they graduate, the students leave 70 people in the church. I said, how many people in your town? He says about 20,000. So I said, my friend, your problem is you run a prayer meeting, you run a home group meeting, and you run a church meeting. All of those together added up, adds up to about eight or nine hours. There's 168 hours in the week. There's another 160 hours that you haven't defined who you are and what you do. And you pitch up at those meetings once a week, hoping that somehow, miraculously, God comes and waves a wand over, and everyone's going to change, the church is going to grow, and everything's going to be... I said, it doesn't work like that. I said, you have to start seeing yourself not as the pastor of those 70 people. You have to start seeing yourself as a pastor of 20,000, of whom 19,930 are just not in church yet. And then how does that begin to shape the way you live towards them? That every meeting, every contact, everybody knows a potential person to come and be a part of who you are. Is that goingness, that apostolicness part of what we are? Too many of us find our identity in ministering to the same people week in and week out, and we think we're achieving something. Listen, when you clean, you can't get that much more clean. Oh, you're right. You go for a bath. You sit in there 20 minutes or 3,000 hours. You just become a wrinkled old prune, but you're still who you are. So let's rather look at going to, taking this time and saying, actually, we exist for the country. We exist way beyond ourselves. For, and let's start putting our efforts there as sent ones. Are you okay? And let me tell you this while I'm at it. This gospel has incredible power. He said this gospel came to you. The gospel, friends, is in the power of a seed. The power of a seed. Tell you a little story. 
Here I am, a 16, 17-year-old. I moved to Johannesburg from Durban. I'm not happy, by the way. I don't want to be in Joburg. This voice said to me, will you go to Johannesburg for me? We're in a church because that church was giving my family food parcels. I didn't know Jesus. He could have walked right past me. Okay, the flowing robe and stuff would have given it away. But let's just say he was dressed like us. I wouldn't have known Jesus if he walked past me. And I'm going to church just because my parents go. And this voice says to me, will you go to Johannesburg for me? I'm like, well, obviously not. <laughs> True story. Six weeks later, I'm living in Joburg. My, my mom and dad put me and my brother on a bus and sent us to Joburg. Because my sister had like a, something in her hip or something. She couldn't, whatever. Hey, I'm, I'm hacked off. So I said this, you know what? If there's a God in heaven and he's got so much power that he can take me against my will, here, I'm going to take back whatever power I have. I'm not going to church again. So my parents arrive in Joburg like a couple of weeks later. Right, we're going to look for a church. I said, no, no, you're looking for a church. I'm not interested. So I don't go to church. The school they put me in, and this is a true story, there's all these classes, A, B, C, D, E, F, you know? And the B class had a problem because it's all these girls. You know, girls can be like serious nerds. They study, they get high marks. And where we are, you wear a uniform. So they get different colored blazers and they all these scrolls down there and they're all intelligent. The class average is 85%. So what they did, this is a, they took nine of us guys and put us in that class to bring the, the, the class average down to a very healthy 65. And, so, and we did it. We achieved admirably. And uh, so I'm one of the guys, 18 girls, nine guys, average comes from 85 down to 60 odd. We did our part. And uh, these girls with these little red blazers and stuff had these little Bible bags, you know, little king's kids and all this. I'm like, <sighs> and what would happen in break time is we play a bit of one bound soccer and we're doing our thing. And there's a music room upstairs, like, like up there. And these little Christians sit and sing their little songs, clap their little hands. It used to frustrate the life out of me. I would take the ball and bounce it against their window to shut them up. That irritated me. Why? Because my, what my unsaved spirit was starting to learn was that this gospel that starts as a seed has a power that is irresistible and irrepressible. And one year later, I got on my knees and cried, repented, gave my life to Jesus, left university, started preparing for ministry because the call came upon me. I got saved on a Sunday. Monday morning, went with a Bible that a friend gave me the night before. And I said, okay, God, you got to talk to me. And I opened my, put my Bible closed there. Talk to me. I'm waiting. They told me God's going to talk to me. So I'm waiting. I must have waited 25 minutes. I watched this Bible. There's nothing happening. Yeah. But, but this funny thought kept coming into my mind. Ephesians 2, 18 and 19. Just like that. I'm like, what's that? So I go to, you know, table of contents in the beginning. Ephesians, okay, page 1,400. Go to page 1,400. Ephesians 2, 18. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of God's own household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The first words God ever spoke to me. A day after I got saved. Day after that, they prayed for me for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The next week, we're preaching in pubs and clubs because this gospel, friends, when you proclaim it, when you speak it, when you pray it, when you just share a scripture with someone, you are unleashing the unstoppable seed of the word of God. That's why Paul writes, and he says, this word, this 
gospel has been growing and bearing fruit among you. I want to encourage you, even if you don't see it right now, this gospel, this seed is unstoppable. Find opportunities to plant it. Find opportunities to speak it, to live it, to communicate it. That seed, God says, I will watch that seed. It will not fall to the ground. It will accomplish the very purpose for which I sent it. And the person on the other side could be a rebellious little ball-kicking guy like me who's not interested in anything to do with what you're saying. And a year later, I'm giving my life to Jesus and surrendering to his lordship through the very people that irritated the hell out of me. Because of the unstoppable nature of the Word of God. Now remember, Paul's in a prison cell writing a letter to a church, hoping they get it. Listen, you're a sent one. You're part of a family. We want to see fruit in you. Get the gospel out. And then lastly, by verse 7, it's His grace. It's His grace. This grace of God that has reached out to you. There's a lot you can say about the grace of God. But I want to say this about the grace of God. Man can make no claim on God. God reaches out to man. God initiated my relationship with him. The Bible says God knew me before I was born, before I was even a thought in my father's mind. God knew me, he fashioned me, he prepared me. He called me before I was born, same as you. Which means if he goes to all that effort, he had better take the effort of leading me the rest of my life. Not this up, sit and fast and pray for 15 years for one voice from God. Can I tell you, he's always speaking. He's always acting. He's always active. Why? Because he's always ahead of the game. He never sleeps nor slumbers. His son is always praying for you. His spirit is always within you. There is a sense of momentum around being a Christian that if you just tap into it, God's always ahead of you. You notice the Bible doesn't say, Holy Spirit, keep in step with this freak. The Bible says you keep in step with him. Why? Because he's always going somewhere. Jesus said, my father is always at his work. How do you build momentum? Start to understand. This gospel of grace says I worked harder than all of them. The grace of God enables me to say no to sin and to run forward with the things of God because I am convinced that God started it, God's doing it, and God's gonna finish it. And because of that, I put my hand in his and I move forward. The heart of the gospel is not my commitment to Jesus. It's God's commitment to me in Christ on that cross. That's what grace is. He is absolutely committed to me for all of eternity, and I lean into it. His grace is not me striving to make him Lord. It's him already Lord, giving me the privilege of serving alongside him. Grace is every person who turns to Jesus can be far more than they are right now. Grace is the power of God to bring about life-giving change. 34 minutes and I'm done. But I would love to have shared a couple of stories with you, which I won't, about how I've seen the power and the presence of God touch people's lives in these last years. Unapologetically. So I'm going to say something. I said I'm going to try not to offend you. I will try not to offend you. But can I say this? Stop getting so offended. Is that all right? Now, Greg, when you come to Australia, you know, you can't tell anyone. You've got to ask him. You've got to put five pleases into the sentence. Well, that's why you are like you are. 
Have you ever noticed, you get a person with a go-forward attitude, no matter what country they're from, they tend to achieve more than those who don't. Funny, hey, because Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. He didn't say, you know, please. We pray the language of desperation. Ask, seek, knock. I'm looking for a lost coin, a lost pearl. I'm looking for lost treasure. I'm looking for. Then when it comes to people, oh, I'm so apologetic, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to sorry you into hell, all right? I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. And one of the things I've determined as a Christian is no is no longer an option. Because it's yes and amen in him. No is no longer an option. Can I talk to you? No, not really. You're going to. And I'm trying to say there needs to be a front-footedness around who we are where we don't apologize for what we are achieving. Instead, we're saying, God, there's so much more because even if it seems I'm in a prison cell, I am called to be an apostolic. I am called as a saint one. I am part of a family. Christ is at work in me. The work is, iris, is, is iri, uh, what do you call it? It's unstoppable. And I am a victim of the grace of God. And I'm just going to live that way. Who? The most unsuspecting little Epaphras. I don't even know what he looked like. And Paul says, you heard this gospel, not from me, the super apostle, but Epaphras. Who? I don't know. But my dear fellow worker. Man, your potential is huge. Just unlock it. Say, so, okay. What's the worst that can happen? A little bit of rejection. Some of you are not married to the first person you ever tried to date. Some of you here, you tried, you tried, you got rejected 15,000 times. You then found your current wife on the internet. Here's my point you've had rejection. Some of you never made the school team. You've had rejection. If someone doesn't want to hear the gospel, it's a little bit more rejection. Get over it. You're a dead person anyway. Correct? Just have the decision that says, you know what? I lose nothing. You gain everything. I'm a victim of God's grace, and I want you to be because I'm a sent one. Let that permeate our churches. Leon.